It's great to be here today. Uh, my name is Rob Crespo. For all of you that uh, do not know me, I'm one of the deacons here at LifeSpring Bible Church. And for all of you on uh, Facebook Live, I apologize. Last week, the second thing I was corrected on was that I was speaking over here. So you only got to see about this half of me. So I'm going to try to fix that this week and, and be right in the center and try to plant myself in this area. Um, so I apologize to all of you for that. All right. Today, our text brings us to Mark 15, and I'm going a little bit off of the way we had planned out the, the, the breakdown of the sermons for the next couple weeks. I'm going to take a little bit more uh, from what I'm going to talk on next week and shorten down the passage of Scripture we're going to cover next week. So if you would, open your Bibles to Mark 15. We're going to be starting in verse 16 and going through verse 39 today. And as we read God's Word, if you would please stand with me. Mark 15, verses 16 through 39. And the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put on his own clothes. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against, charges against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw this, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Lord God, as we dive into your word today to visit the ideas that you want us to take away from this. I pray that you would help 
our minds to be opened and our hearts to be open to exactly what you have for us today. That we wouldn't be distracted by anything going on, anything we have later on today, that we would be completely focused and completely present here with you today. God, please put my words and my desires away right now and may your Holy Spirit speak through me that your words would be spoken here to your people. In that, God, may you be glorified. That is our prayer. That is our desire. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know what? I'm actually going to get rid of this. I'm just going to put this off to the side. All right, I'm back. I'm going to try teaching from this today. We'll see how this works. All right, so last week... We spoke on this first portion of the, of the chapter 15 from Mark, and I proposed to you uh, and ordered ev- the events that came through the civil trial that happened uh, as were depicted in the four Gospels. So I basically took the four Gospels, brought them together, and tried to give you an order of events in order to try to clarify what was going on in the Scripture to try to clear up any confusion. And from that, what we saw, the main point that came up was that there is a a deity in Christ that comes out of the fact that no matter how they tried to try him, whether it was in the religious courts or the civil courts, they could not find him guilty. They had to pin something on him that he did not do. They had to find him falsely guilty in order to then crucify him. So we saw that everything pointed in that to the deity of Christ. Because if Christ is truly God, he could not be guilty of any sin. If Jesus was truly God, there could be nothing that he did that was sinful. And today we're going to continue that theme. So today's key point that I want you to see is that God's sovereignty is displayed in the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and points to the deity of Jesus the Christ. God's sovereignty is displayed in the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and point to the deity of Jesus the Christ. So today we will continue this theme by showing God's sovereignty on display to point to the deity of Jesus in this crucifixion. Instead of detailing the events that went on, and the way they were ordered, and the significance, I'm going to try to go a different route. Because if you look across the four Gospels, they pretty much agree on everything that is said in this passage of Scripture. In fact, most of them say almost the exact same thing from different perspectives. There's very little that any of the Gospels differ or add to or reveal. There are some passages that are in John, a few verses here and a few verses there that are Uh, unique to John. There's the same thing in Luke. Matthew and Mark are almost the exact same in their account of of this passage of Scripture. The only thing that Mark really adds to it that we just read about was the different time frames of the things that happened. He talked about the, the third hour this happened, at the sixth hour this happened, at the ninth hour this happened. So I'm not going to go into that today because I don't think there's very much confusion in that. But what I'm going to do today 
is try to propose, try to expand on this theme that we've been talking about, expand on that main point that I pointed to you. John Piper states that it is impossible to grasp the central drama of the Bible until we understand and even feel the tension between two of its central themes. These themes are God's passion to preserve and display His glory and the theme of God's inscrutable love for sinners who have scorned His glory. It is impossible to grasp or even grasp the central, central drama of the Bible excuse me, until we understand and even feel the tension between its two central themes, God's passion to preserve and display His glory on one hand, and the theme of God's inscrutable love for sinners who have scorned his glory on the other hand. Do you see how there's a conflict between those two? God trying to maintain his glory, but yet at the same time loving sinners who have scorned his glory? There's a, there's a conflict there. They are like two great courses of music that play in parallel to one another, but for some reason don't seem to fit completely together as if there's something missing, some connecting riff, some stanza that fills the missing melody which harmonizes the seeming, seemingly disparate musical stanzas. The connection between these two disjointed melodies, as Piper rightly states, is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the resolution to these two disparate choruses that are playing side by side. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you cannot understand how those two central themes fit together. But in that, in understanding the death and resurrection of Jesus, we understand that. So today we're going to talk about the death of Jesus. And in a couple weeks, we're going to go into the resurrection of Jesus and how that plays into it. Come on in. Come on in. <clears throat> We've got a guest here for you. <laughs> All right. The most beautiful part of this symphony is that it began not at the birth of Jesus, but it began thousands of years prior to that. It began well before Mary conceived even before there was a human knowledge that the Messiah's coming was imminent, this symphony was already created. It was already orchestrated. God had already planned it out. The events surrounding this period of time between Pilate's order to crucify Jesus and his death are pretty consistent. We mentioned that. <clears throat> so today, I won't go even go into the gory details that, that surround the crucifixion. You've heard about that. You've seen the movie, The Passion, many of you. Pastor, in fact, has talked about it multiple times in the past year and outlined what would have happened to a human body during a crucifixion. I'm not going to hit on those today. Um, that seems like what most people do and what a lot of passages or pastors talk about during this passage of Scripture. I want to come at it from a different way. My goal today is to build on the case that we made last week, that the events that we read about, namely the two trials last week and the crucifixion this week, 
all support the case for the deity of Christ. So let's begin by talking about wine. No one wants to talk about wine? Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about wine for a little bit, okay? So, <laughs> I heard debauchery over there. All right. So, verse 23. Verse 23 of this passage talks about Jesus being given wine mixed with myrrh. All right? Wine mixed with myrrh. So, why does the Bible detail this? Well, typically during this period of time, if someone was being crucified, there were typically people there that were uh, on looking, watching the crucifixions that were happening, and there were some people that felt compassion for those that were getting crucified. So what they would do is they would take wine, mix it with myrrh, and then they would provide it to the people that were being crucified. What was the purpose of this? The purpose of it is to kill pain, to try to deaden the pain that they would be feeling, because obviously... They were in a lot of pain during the crucifixion. So, Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh. And what did he do? He didn't drink it. He tasted it, but when he saw what it was, because obviously he was probably a little uh, maybe delusioned by all the pain. He was kind of out of it. But when he tasted that, he knew what it was. And he said, no, I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to drink that. first time I, I realized what was going on here is actually when I was reading um, on DesiringGod.org. It's one of John Piper's sites, and uh, the executive editor, David Mathis, brought this up, and he mentioned that when it talks about wine mixed with myrrh, the same purpose was there for the wine mixed with gall. They kind of had the same uh, reason why they would do that, and we see this accounted for in both Matthew and Mark's gospel. These are the two places we see this. Verse 36, however, we see something different. We see sour wine being offered. And does Jesus take the sour wine in this case? Yes, Jesus takes the sour wine. So why not the wine mixed with gall, but he takes this sour wine? Well, the purpose of that is that straight sour wine back in these times was not meant as, a, as something to bring you down as a downer, much like wine or beer will do. It kind of soothes you, it kind of calms you down. The purpose of this sour wine was much more like, I kind of make it akin to kombucha or something like that, where it would kind of liven you up. It would kind of heighten your senses. It would bring you back into alertness and focus. So the purpose of this was, when it was offered to Jesus, we see that there are circumstances surrounding this. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did the people around him say? They said, hold on, he's calling Elijah. He's going to perform another miracle. Let's, let's keep him alert to try to see if we can see what's going to happen with this. So they offered him sour wine. And what did Jesus do? He took it. He took it to increase his alertness, to keep him in his right mind, to prolong what was going on at this time. You see, this is important. Jesus knew that he had to endure the full extent of the punishment to atone for sin. He had to feel the complete agony that was due for sin. And the crucifixion was only part of that. 
only a small part. You see, what happened right before this was he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened during that time? He was removed from the presence of God. Completely removed from the presence of God. And he took that sour wine in order to heighten his senses, to help him feel the full impact of being removed from the presence of God, which is the eternal punishment for anyone who is not saved. To be completely removed from the presence of God. You see, unlike the wine mixed with myrrh, Jesus could have taken that to deaden the pain, but no, he said, no, I don't want to deaden this. I need to feel this completely. And so when he was offered this sour wine, which would focus him, which would heighten his senses, he said, I will take that to fully feel what this is going to feel like. He knew that he had to endure that in order to be the perfect atonement for our sins. Some people, without understanding the why behind that, behind the sour wine and the wine mixed with myrrh, we wouldn't understand that, but we see that it's given to us in the scripture for a reason, to help us understand the why Jesus does what he does. It's important for us to remember that as believers, to understand the why of that. We're going to shift gears now and start looking at some of the prophecies around the passion of Christ, the, the crucifixion of Christ. So we're going to dive into some prophecies. So if um, you've got your notes pages in front of you, you may not be able to read the words on there, but there's some space so you can take notes. So please take notes on these because I've got them on the screen coming up, but um, I want you guys to go back in and dive into the scripture in your own quiet times, your own private times with God, so you can really flesh out what we're going to go through. So, there's many biblical prophecies that talk about what was going to happen when the Messiah came. And we're going to dive into some of those. The first one, Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with the suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. See, that was fulfilled in two passages, I believe, Mark 15, 29, and John 1, 10 through 11. John 1, 10 through 11 comes from the word of God himself, from Jesus himself. Mark 15, 29, we just read a little bit ago where it talks about those who passed by derided him and wagged their heads. What does wagging their heads mean? It means I'm walking by and I'm just like, no, can't believe you. That's what that's talking about. The next one we see, Psalm 41.9. It said, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Pastor talked about this a few weeks ago in the way Judas betrayed Jesus. Mark 14.10 Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus. Zechariah 11.12 says, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid him 30 pieces of silver. We see that fulfilled in Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out 30 silver coins. 
Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before the shears. Is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Mark 15, 5, we talked about this last week, but Jesus made no reply to the accusations brought against him, and Pilate was amazed by that. We went into that in depth last week, so if you didn't catch that, please go onto our website and look at the sermon last week so you can see what we talked about there. Psalm 22, 1 and 2 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. And am not silent. Matthew 27, 46. And the verse we talked about today chronicles the cry that Jesus said right before he ended up giving his last breath. The cry out to God, why have you forsaken me? We talked about why that's necessary for Jesus to be separated from the face of God, from his presence. Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You know, the funny thing I I found about this one was that if you really wanted to discredit Jesus, if you really wanted to say that he was not the Messiah and ridicule him for that, you would not go back and quote scripture that points directly to who he is. But what do we see in Matthew's account of this? Matthew 27, 41 through 44, in the same way the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, those who called him guilty in the religious trial and delivered him over to Pilate, said he saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see almost the exact words from the Psalms used by the chief priests and the elders. It's amazing when you see that, because that shouldn't have happened if they were trying to discredit who Christ was. They shouldn't have used passages from the old scripture that they probably all well knew. That shouldn't have happened. But it did. God orchestrated that. Psalm 22, 15, it continues on. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you lay me in the dust to death. Matthew 27, 48. We see immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put on a stick, and gave him something to drink. Talking about how, what he would be experiencing, what Greg talked about a few weeks ago, about what he would be experiencing during the crucifixion how he'd be completely dehydrated. His mouth would be sticking together because there was no moisture left to feed his mouth. All of the moisture in his body was being brought to his internal organs to try to keep him alive longer. So it would create a dry mouth sensation. Psalm 22, 17 and 18. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. John 19, 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, what did they do? They took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them. 
with the undergarments remaining. They realized the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they cast lots to see who was going to get it. They didn't want to break it apart. So we see both of those pieces of that passage from Psalm fulfilled there. And that's not it. There's more. More about Jesus' life that was prophesied in the Old Testament. In Isaiah alone, we see Isaiah 7.14 talks about the virgin birth. 52.3 talks about Jesus or Israel being redeemed without money. 52.14 says his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. That's talking about what happened after he was beaten by the Romans. 53.2 says he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was not a beautiful looking man, someone like Saul who is talked about specifically for his good looks and appearance. He was just a normal person. They're like, who is this man? He came from Bethlehem. He came from Galilee. Who is this guy? Why is he a prophet? Those are the things that were said about Jesus. Outside of Isaiah, we see Micah 5.2 talks about him coming from Bethlehem. Hosea 11.1 talks about him being called out of Egypt. We see that happening when Jesus and his uh, family, his parents, Joseph and Mary, fled to Egypt, and they were called out of Egypt by, a, by an angel of God. Zechariah 9.9, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Psalm 41.9, he was betrayed by a friend. Daniel 9.26 and Isaiah 53.8 say he, was died, he died and was numbered with criminals. Over and over again, we see different things spoken about the Messiah in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. So what's the big deal about fulfilling prophecies? Why does it matter? We see there's a guy named Peter Stoner. He was a mathematician. He was, all of his work on this was documented by the American Science Association to ensure that the methods he used were good, were accurate, were uh, in line with general Uh, statistical practices to make sure that everything was right. Just to, I say that just to tell you that this is not some random guy. They proved his work was credible. So what he did was that he took the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament and he said, okay, what is the likelihood, what is the, the statistical probability that this could happen? And so what he did is he actually had his students help him with this. He said, okay, guys, I want you to take one prophecy, the prophecy about the 30 pieces of silver, and I want you to say, how statistically likely is this going to happen? So they ran through all the calculations, came up with all the probabilities, and what did they come up with? They said it was 1 in 10 to the 21st power times. Now, what does that mean? I wish my bank account said that. (laughs) That would be nice. One in one with 21 zeros behind it. Chance that that would happen. Just one prophecy. And how many prophecies did we just go through a few seconds ago? More than just one. I'll say that. One in 10 to the 21st power. So what does that practically look like? Because if you're not a math person, then maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. So what they said, this is what it would be like. They said, if you took silver dollars, you guys know what a silver dollar is, maybe fewer of us these days than back in, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but took a silver dollar, a coin, and you 
stacked them over the surface of the earth, completely covering the surface of the earth, and made that 150 feet deep. Okay, imagine 150 foot deep swimming pool that was as big as the face of the earth and filled with silver dollars. And one of those silver dollars had a mark on it. it was colored red or whatever. And then you took a person and you blindfolded them and you stuck them out in the middle of that pool and you said, all right, you go pick that one. And the first try, they would go and pick it up. That is the probability that we're talking about here. The same statistical probability that that would happen. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And that's just one prophecy. One of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And he filled, fulfilled hundreds of them. Okay? That's amazing. You see, I asked the question earlier, why did Jesus do this? Why would Jesus deliver himself up to be crucified? He loves us. He had the power to deliver himself. He had the power to go away. In fact, think about this. I want to make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself. Hold, on, hold that thought. The reason why he did this is because this all points to his deity. It all points to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He forever continues to be the Messiah who is spoken of in the Old Testament in order to deliver us and be the atonement for our sins. So what? So what does this mean to us? Why is this important? I've got three points for you guys today that I think speak to why this is important. The first one, God's sovereignty means that God is in control of all things. God's sovereignty means that God is in control of all things. How does that apply? See, God didn't leave your salvation up to chance. He sent his son. He didn't leave it up to you trying to do something to earn your way into salvation, earn your way into his presence. He didn't leave it up to someone, something else, someone imperfect coming to you to do something for you, some other human. He sent not just a man, he sent the God-man. He sent his son to earth to fulfill what was needed to balance out these two symphonies we talked about, these two courses, to bring them together. Only Jesus could have done that. The second thing, Christ didn't just die for your sins. He came to atone for your sins. There's a difference. You see, if Jesus just came and died for your sins, what could he have done? He could have shown up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just came down. He was perfect. Could have been in fully man form. Could have been fully God at the same time. Could have been picked up randomly, thrown up on a cross, and he could have died for your sins. But he came to atone for your sins. What does that mean? He had to live as well. He had to live a perfect life, fulfilling the whole law. Fulfilling the word of the prophets. 
All of those things had to come together. He had to live as well. So that's why he was born a baby. That's why he lived a perfect life. That's why he performed miracles and healed people. That is why Jesus came and lived to atone for your sins, to be a worthy sacrifice for you and for me. He didn't just come to die. He came to atone for your sins. His life was critical. His suffering was critical. And his death was essential. All of that had to be done. Not just one or the other. All of it was essential to our salvation. And finally, Jesus completed his work so that you can't be saved by works. He completed his work so that you can be saved, I'll say it another way, so that you can be saved without works. So it's not up to you. It's not up to you trying to earn anything. It's not up to you trying to help yourself get there. It's not up to you trying to earn something from God in order to make yourself feel better. It's not up to you to try to have the right job, get the right paycheck with 21 zeros behind the one. It's not up to any of that. It is up to Jesus Christ who came and died for you and for me. See, Jesus harmonized God's love for sinners with his justice and his glory. Jesus is that connecting link that brings it all together, that makes sense of the fact that God has to be glorified. He has to maintain his holiness. He has to maintain his perfection, which means that he has to have justice. He cannot be in the presence of sinners. And But for Jesus Christ, he couldn't do that. But God loves us. He loved us so much that he made a way to himself through his son Jesus. Titus 3.5 reminds us of that. He says in that he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. See, that's the good news for us that know him and love him. And that can be the good news for you today if you do not know him. But if you don't know Jesus today, if, if you're here for some reason and you don't know this saving Lord, then this should be scary to you. Everything we've talked about should create fear and anxiety inside of you. And if you're feeling that today, that's the Holy Spirit trying to tell you, hey, pay attention, listen up. You've got to respond to this message that has been spoken today.